0: Hello everyone and welcome to Histories of the Unexpected, the show in which we demonstrate that everything, simply everything you can think of, has its own history, like
1: pedalos, emus and braces. Oh, braces, that could be braces on your teeth or uh, things to keep your trousers up, uh, (laughs) so we could do both of those. Brilliant. However, we will be following the links in our minds as we come across them, explaining how those histories link together in unexpected ways. Who knew, for example, who knew, Sam? that the history of bells is in fact all about communication in Tudor England, or that the history of the smile, rather like the history of cats, is in fact all about the French Revolution.
0: (laughs) Lots of things are all about the French Revolution, I'm increasingly discovering. Uh, The man not sitting opposite me, because we're social distancing, he will nevertheless help pilot us through this wonderful historical world. He's one of the country's leading professors of history. It's Professor Extraordinaire James Daybell. Hi, James hello sam
1: good to see- good to- good not to see you i mean it's I, I don't mean that i mean it's it's good to hear your voice uh, yeah. although we are opposite. Uh, opposite ends of town because the man not sitting opposite me because we are in lockdown is the famous historical adventure hero himself, Dr Sam Willis, off of the telly. Hello, Sam. Hello, everyone. This is another episode in our
0: special homeschooling series. I hope you're enjoying them. Um, in each episode, we take a subject that I bet you don't think has a history and we prove that it does. And today is an absolute cracker. We're doing the history of bling, which, of course, is all about costume in Stuart, England. But before we talk about the rest of England and these fabulous fabulous clothing we're going to talk about other ways you can think about the history of bling James
1: what have you got oh I've got all sorts of things starting with gloves would you believe now there Google this up Google this up you want glove bejeweled glove of the Holy Roman Emperor uh, Google this up you will get you uh, an ornate glove appearing before you. Think Michael Jackson, only more bling. This was a glove that was produced in Palermo in Sicily in about the 11th, 12th century. And it is a, it's part of the ceremonial regalia of the Holy Roman Emperor. And the whole point in it, in this bejeweled magnificence, was about bling. It was about showing how powerful and important he was. And throughout history, people have sought to show their wealth, their importance, their standing, their power through Things that they own, beautiful, shiny things that they own, whether this be uh, gloves, whether it be jewels, whether it be ornate fountains like the fountains in Versailles, which were flowing over with perfume, or whether it be jewellery. And we can think here throughout history of how people have worn rich, sumptuous jewellery in order to express how important they are. Think back to the 14th century in West Africa. Between 1312 and 1337, uh, Africa. there was an African king at the time called Mansa Musa, who was supposedly one of the wealthiest uh, individuals in human history. And there are pictures of him at the time, seated on a throne of gold, holding a cup of gold with a gold crown on his head and a scepter of gold. And basically he is trying here to communicate how powerful and important he is but the term bling also refers to it was first coined by hip-hop artists uh in the 70s uh and if you look um at um if you look at the work of dj cool Herc, um and you think about somebody like curtis blow these people are pictured donning Gold chains around their neck, and this was part of the kind of portable wealth that you had. That culminates in somebody like Floyd Mayweather, the boxer, uh, wearing uh, ten million dollar diamond chains. So jewelry symbolizes status, and throughout the sort of nineteen mid to late nineteen eighties, hip hop um, and rap artists show their wealth and status by having these big bling gold chains. People like Eric B and Rakim, Run DMC, LL Cool J. Again, Google LL Cool J early front covers to his albums and you will see him there sporting gold. So there we are. There's a sort of um, a trip down bling for you, Sam. <laughs> nice. I
0: mean, it made me think particularly about the... Uh, the Spanish Armada of 1588, when uh, the Spanish are trying to invade Queen Elizabeth I, England. A lot of the ships get wrecked. uh, 20 of them are wrecked off the north and west coast of Ireland. This means there are shipwrecks around the coast of Ireland. So if you go to various museums in Ireland, I'm lucky enough to have been to these, you can see some of the treasures um, that have survived uh, from the shipwrecks that have been discovered. And they're absolutely unbelievable. There's... um, one, it's in the collection of the National Museum's Northern Ireland, and it is a gold chain that was four metres long, um, and I've been lucky enough to hold this in my hands. It's unbelievably heavy, and you'd think, actually, as soon as you put it round your neck, that it's really not a very sensible thing to be uh, wearing when you're at sea, but definitely not in a storm. Um This... Interest in in bling and items that can be disco- uh, discovered in shipwrecks also made me think about the Atosha, the Nuestra Señora de Atosha, which was a Spanish treasure ship which sank in 1622 and then was discovered in the 70s by um, a guy who's a chicken farmer, <laughs> and it became. It's actually recognised in the Guinness Book of World Records now for being the most most valuable shipwreck ever recovered because it was carrying 40 tonnes of gold and silver and 32 kilograms of emeralds, all uh, coming from Central America and South America back to Spain. So the sailors were on the Spanish Armada in 1588. This is the kind of stuff that they would have been, been wearing. It was gold, silver and emeralds. Um, which had all been imported from South America. It also made me think, James, actually, of of things that are are, or were valuable at the time, which we may not think of as now. And um, I remember uh, many years ago going to the British Museum and looking around an exhibition where they had an exhibition on cowrie shells, which were, in, in some cultures many, many years ago, were used as currency. Uh, Absolutely fascinating. So Americans, Asia, in in Africa, also in Australia, but particularly in China. In fact, the link between a cowrie shell, a little little, tiny sort of mollusk shell, little white thing, very beautiful, very intricate. Uh, The key thing, of course, is that they're impossible to forge. You can't just make one. Uh, which is why they were used because they were they were so valuable, very difficult to forge to replicate in fact, the um, many characters in in modern Chinese now relating to money or trade contain the character for the cowrie shell it 's a very distinctive a very distinctive shape, a little rectangle with two lines and um, two little feet coming out and If you turned it upside down, it would look a little bit like a cowrie shell hanging on a necklace. Um, and there are examples of these in the British Museum dating back to 1500 BC, uh, the uh, the Shang Dynasty in China, but also 18th century Africa. So across millennia, people are using cowrie shells um, for currency and for trade. So it's not all, James, it's not all about shiny, shiny jewelries and diamonds and gold. There are other ways of having bling. But today, what we're going to do is we want to talk about bling in relation to the mid-17th century, particularly the Restoration. This is the period after the British monarchy has been restored. So there's been a civil war. Cromwell's been in charge. All this period known as the Interregnum after the execution of Charles I. Uh, By 1660, Charles II has come back from exile And has assumed the throne again. And it's an absolutely fascinating period uh, for many, many reasons. But I think primarily for the clothes that people started to wear. I want to talk uh, or read a bit here from the diary of Samuel Pepys. He's a very important man generally. uh, But uh, one of the most important sources for 17th century history. Because he kept a diary and he didn't just keep a diary he kept a diary for a decade and he wrote down millions and millions and millions of words describing what he was doing on an everyday basis and here's a little e- extract one of the um, by no means is this a unique extract one of the many in which he talks about what he's wearing lord's day This morning I put on my best black cloth suit, trimmed with scarlet ribbon, very neat, with my cloak lined with velvet and a new beaver, which altogether is very noble with my black silk-knit cannons I bought a month ago. I to church alone, my wife not going, and there I find my Lady Batten in a velvet gown, which vexed me that she should be in it before my wife, or that I am able to put her into one but what cannot be, cannot be. However, when I came home, I told my wife of it, and to see my weakness, I could on the sudden have found my heart to have offered her one, but second thoughts put it by, and indeed it would undo me to think of doing, as Sir W. Batten and his lady do, who hath a good estate besides his office. It's a wonderful little extract, this, because it it opens up a window into all sorts of things. First of all, he's describing his clothes, his black cloth suit, the scarlet ribbon. He's very careful about that, the, the velvet cloak. So he's in a very luxurious thing. <laughs> then he sees a lady wearing a velvet dress and he's a bit cross that, that she's in it, not his wife. But then he admits that he absolutely couldn't afford to, uh, to to buy one for his wife or he probably could but wouldn't buy one for his wife and it seems to be he's spending all of his money on his own clothes. Um, it's also worth thinking that um, Samuel Pepys does talk about what he wears a lot and one of the reasons for that perhaps is that he is the son was the son of a tailor. James, let's explain what's going on here. Take us back in time a bit. Okay, Sam,
1: I'll tell you all about clothing. Uh, We know, surprisingly, an awful lot about what people wore. It, It crops up everywhere in the historical records, and historians of the 16th and 17th century and 18th century have been really interested in this topic. If we look at where it crops up in the records, it's discussed by people in their letters, in their diaries, in household accounts. We're able to see how much people are spending on clothes, we also know an awful lot about where they bought clothes. Listen to our last couple of podcasts on the his- unexpected history of shopping, and what that talks about is where people were able to buy things from the 16th through to the 18th century. We see a network of shops, not only in London, but also in the provinces, within villages. We've got networks of peddlers who carry packs on their back and carry small items of clothing with them around the country. So we're able to reconstruct the clothing of people at all levels of society. We're able to have a look at people buying everyday items as well as People buying luxury items, certainly by the 18th century. There were regular visits to London for members of the upper gentry classes and mercantile classes. And what we see developing there is a leisured form of shopping where people will wander around the shops for several hours comparing different items of clothing. And we can see very grand clothing at elite levels that are all about display and they're about grandeur and opulence and bling. It's all about how you are presenting yourself as a person. But also lower down the social scale, we can see people who are less well-off, the kinds of clothes they wear, and we can see a market for second-hand clothing. And also we can look at the ways in which people recycle mend and also pass on their clothes. So that gives you some sort of context very broadly about how we might situate clothing. What I want to do now is talk about the Tudor times before we get into the 17th century. And very commonly throughout the medieval period, into Henry VIII's reign and then into the reign of Elizabeth I, there were a series of laws called sumptuary laws which were designed to control Precisely what people should wear, and basically this was because in the sixteenth century, the monarch and the aristocracy didn't really like the idea of everybody wearing the same thing. There was a lot of snobbery around, and they didn't want you know a a maidservant to be dressed the same as a gentlewoman, and so there were a series of sumptuary laws passed, um, and what this meant was that the higher nobility royalty, dukes, etc. could clothe themselves and their horses in all sorts of um, blingy type, that's a phrase, all sorts of opulent, ostentatious uh, pieces of clothing and they could wear woven cloth of gold. Earls could wear sable fur, beautiful, luxurious fur. Barons could Could wear cloth embroidered with gold and silver. Those who were knights of the garter could wear crimson or blue velvet, while ordinary knights were restricted to other colours. And so, what you get is not only the quality of the clothing and the type of clothing, but also the colours were followed a sort of social hierarchy. And the lower down the social scale you go, it was annual income rather than social status or social rank, that determined how much you could spend on clothes. So gentlemen worth £100 a year could wear velvet doublets, um, but only satin or damask in their coats or gowns. If you had an income of £20 a year, you'd be allowed to wear satin and damask doublets and silk or camlet gowns and coats. And only gentlemen and above could wear imported furs, Those below the rank of knights were restricted to other different types of material. Servants and agricultural workers who were worth below £10 a year had to make do with clothes made from cloth uh, less than two shillings per yard. And the interesting thing here is that those who broke the law could, in theory, be punished. Now, in Elizabethan times, women were supposed to wear something called a farthingale. Now this originally was a petticoat with hoops of whalebone stitched in, and later in development it was a horseshoe shaped bolster stuffed with hair or rags and tied around the waist. And the idea of this was so that the skirt would stand out. So imagine you need quite a lot of room in order to wander around in this. And men's clothes were similarly oversized, with sort of big puffy breeches that were padded out with hair, uh, and flowing gowns with loose sleeves and ornate ruffs. Um, so you needed quite a lot of space around you. Now I'll give you an example of one of these uh, sumptuary laws. This is an Elizabethan sumptuary law from 1574, and it says... None shall wear in his apparel any silk of the colour of purple, cloth of gold tissues, nor fur of sables, but only the king, queen, queen's mother, children, brethren, and sisters, uncles, and aunts, and except dukes, marquises, and earls, who may wear the same in doublets, jerkins, linings of cloaks, gowns, and hose, and those of the garter, purple in mantles only." cloth of gold, silver, tinseled satin, silk or cloth mixed or embroidered with gold or silver, except all degrees above Viscounts and Viscountesses, barons and other persons of like degree, in doublets, jerkins, linings of cloaks, gowns and hose. So there you have it. It establishes precisely who should be wearing what. And these very rich and luxurious clothing types were only supposed to be worn by the elite within society. In other words, the upper aristocracy and royalty themselves. Now, what happens when Oliver Cromwell comes onto the throne and we have the Puritans around? um, They have a very strong, strict attitude toward dress, and they think that people should dress in a very sober manner makeup was banned uh, for women girls and women they thought should be dressed in a very uh, proper manner um, and leaders and soldiers roamed the streets to you know to to sort of stop women wearing uh, makeup and and colorful dresses were also banned during this period so there we are sam we know an awful lot about uh, about 16th and 17th century clothing. But you're going on to tell us about restoration clothing and bling now.
0: Yeah, so um, after the Civil War and Cromwell and, and this very a uh, period of, of dull, dull clothing um, during the Interregnum, during the Civil War and afterwards, uh, you have the restoration. So Charles II comes back. He's been living in Holland. And uh, don't forget, this is key, his mum, who's Henrietta Maria, she was French. And he's inherited a lot of like, love of all things French, particularly French style, from her. So he comes back with Dutch influence, with French influence in clothing, French artistic influences, and starts setting uh, new trends in how people are, should should wear clothes, how people should be should appear. And it's dramatic. It's 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 a real fundamental change. It's a it's a, a kind of a release of, of suppressed feelings of freedom, uh, which has all been suppressed during during the Puritan period. So this is marked by um expressive clothing. Lots of um, everything in excess, basically, whether it's curls, ribbons, bows, puffs, flounces, feathers, all sorts of extreme fashions. Lace is very important. Lace is, takes the um, position of the rough, if you imagine the ruff of the, of the Elizabethans, um, very high on their necks. They start having beautiful lace collars coming across from Holland, the Low Countries, where the lace was made. And then ribbons. I talked a little bit about the history of ribbons when we did our podcast on ribbons and um, homeschooling Georgian and Victorian orphans. Ribbons are hugely important during this period. They're actually laying the foundation for the Industrial Revolution for parts of it because the demand for silk ribbon, silk that's come all the way over land from Asia, is hugely high. They are uh, not just the material of the silk, but also in- incredible colours. And they're uh, they're absolutely there are ribbons everywhere, ribbons tying uh, wigs. They are uh, hanging in loops around people's waists. They're tied to shirt sleeves. They're twists around the knees uh, in, on hats and people's hair necks, arms, legs, shoes, tops of their boots. There are ribbons absolutely everywhere. A very, very distinctive um, type of dress. In terms of their cravats around the neck, those would be would be long, um, stiff bows or they'd be knotted very tightly, allowing the lace to, to float gracefully. So there's a lot of movement in, in the materials that they're using and a lot of uh, just very beautiful, shiny material in terms of the silk or exquisitely, uh, minutely made material in terms of the lace. Um, for women, there's... Well, I, I think it's... Already in the Elizabethan period, there was a wide range of, of fabrics, dyes and textiles available. And this just increases by the 1660s, when initially a lot of the, uh, the goods had come from just the Italy and the Low Countries. But now you're getting a much, much broader influx of material, which is, I say, characterised by, by the silk in the ribbons. Uh, there were also women's fashion was particularly um, notable for the accessories, using muffs to keep hands warm, her handbags to store handkerchiefs, money to store scent face masks, might be surprising to us but face masks were very popular as were hoods because they ena- enabled women to walk around busy streets without being recognized. Charles II's clothing himself is is a fascinating thing to study because what he's doing is he's choosing his clothing to make a a statement about the king that he wants to be about the royal image that he wants to to everyone to absorb and we know a lot about this because annual orders were placed by the people who worked for him for his clothes the yeoman of the robes for the king's clothes um, and they placed orders with the great wardrobe it was called that's a subdepartment of the king's household and what they do is they buy silks and linens in bulk for royal use so then it's a matter of turning that raw material into wonderful, wonderful garments. He's got seamstresses who make his shirts, but a tailor who makes his outer garments. We know who these people were. Um, Quite a wide, wide variety of them. But there was one French guy in particular who spent a great deal of time with Charles II. He was called Claude Sorceau. Very significant influence. He was parisian uh, remember, I was saying that Charles' mother came from Paris as well. And um, when Charles spent some exile in France, they would have really been influenced with his uh, Parisian tailor to bring this style Back. But he also then starts working with an Englishman, a guy called John Allen from 1660. And John Allen ensures that the network of suppliers and craftsmen, everything that the king needs to make his clothes is all there and is all in place. So they've got a very effective operating system to produce regular new and magnificent costumes for the king. Um, on average we think between 30 and 40 new suits, single garments or other sets of garments per year but at the same time the tailors are repairing his other clothes. Uh, The the clothes themselves uh, they're not just symbolic they've got a a real value which I think is fascinating. Samuel Pepys going back to Pepys again writing in his diary he talks about a process in which Um, The grooms of the bedchamber, so these are people very close to the king, they take away the king's linen at the quarter's end as their fee. So they're actually taking payment in the shirts of the king. This results in a bit of a crisis for the king because they have to reproduce a huge amount of linen every year and it does put a, a really quite a heavy burden on the king's finances. But it also allows a tradition of court patronage, which is essentially what was going on. You've been a groom of my bedchamber here you are have some expensive linen. It allows that tradition to carry on operating. It was an important part of court life. There you are, James, little glimpse into into Stuart clothing.
1: Oh brilliant Sam. And and I can add a little bit from the glove work that I've been doing. Uh, that sort of ties up with what you were saying there. And I think if you have a look at fashion in terms of gloves across the, from the Elizabethan period through the 1620s, 30s and 40s and into the Restoration period, we can use that as a way of looking at how attitudes and fashions towards clothing changed. So if you think about the Elizabethan period, what you have there is highly ornate, very decorated gloves you see in Elizabeth's reign and if you have a look at museum collections you can see you know some stunning examples. Now by the 1620s, 1630s and 1640s the period of the Civil War the 1640s these highly decorated gloves become replaced by much simpler styles Um, and women too were wearing much plainer gloves with longer sleeves. However it's the restoration that sees a distinct change. Men's gloves and women's gloves are becoming much more flamboyant and they're using the kind of elaborate ribbons that Sam was talking about. Women's gloves were always very long and narrowly fitted up the arm. And so we can see those kinds of fashions continuing in the 17th century. So I have to bring it always back to gloves. We can also think about, we've, we've mentioned bling, and we can also think about the ostentatious jewellery that people would have worn in the Restoration period. Now, by the mid-17th century, there were changes in fashion that Sam has already talked about. We've got darker fabrics being used, and what this means is that in order to show off the jewellery, you need to have very elaborate gold work with gemstones and pearls. And of course, this all fits into the expanding global trade that made the availability of these gemstones much more uh, readily available. And some of the most impressive examples that we have are necklaces uh, and large bodice, uh, bodice ornaments that will be pinned or stitched onto uh, the fabric of dresses and you found a great example at the victorian albert museum haven't you sam yeah
0: it's wonderful it's um it's quite hard to describe in fact but if you go back to thinking about what i was saying about the ribbons how important ribbons were you imagine a ribbon tied in a really elaborate double bow okay what they've done is they've taken this motif which i think would have been very popular i've seen portraits of the king wearing this double bow on the ribbon around the knees uh, or possibly on the chest. And they've taken that idea and made a necklace out of it. So at the front is a, is a, at the bottom of this circular necklace is a is a blue double bow, but around it has been created the most wonderful chain, which is also created out of colourful bows you've got the small bows in alternating turquoise and black or white and turquoise all of them enameled and at the front is a large diamond set double bow um with flowers uh sapphire and a pearl drop Uh, so made in europe around about 1660 and
1: absolutely gorgeous Lovely, 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 lovely. It's an absolutely stunning uh, example of jewellery That Now, to end, I just want us to have a little sort of think about washing clothes. We think about nowadays how easy that is. We've all got, or well, most of us have washing machines and easily available washing powder and that kind of thing. And we've got tumble dryers to, to deal with it. But this was not the case in the 16th and 17th century. But it wasn't the case that people never washed themselves and that people were a bit smelly. Clothes washing was regarded as a pretty fundamental part of housework and there were various ways in which people did it. There are there are tales of of, you know, children in lower down the social scale who would have had just one set of clothes. And when clothes were being washed, they had to sort of stay in bed. But wealthy people who owned more clothes and linen might have a wash day maybe once a month or or maybe uh, more slightly more often. Uh, It's the job of the housewife or of servants in larger households. There are also, in accounts of gentry, uh, people sending their washing out to washerwomen who would wash things. Would you believe they would wash gloves, Sam, which is where I've come across them. Now, one of the simplest things that you would do is you would go to the nearest source of water, uh, which is usually a pond or a river or a stream, and you would you would um, use the water and use it to beat clean the garments that you were washing and you'd use something called a beetle or a battle door Um, or if you were doing it by a stream or river it might be beaten against rocks. So I mean this isn't great because all you're doing is you're putting it in you're using water and then you're hanging it out to dry in the sunshine. So actually, it's quite difficult to keep things really clean. The sunshine might help with bleaching, but it's quite difficult to to keep them clean. And you think about, you know, the clothes that you wear and they become dirty with things that you eat or mud or sweat or blood or whatever. And you need in some way to use a sort of cleansing agent um there weren't sort of cheap washing powder on the market in the way that there is now and so people would use what was available and one of the cheapest available uh, bleaching agents was uh urine uh which contained ammonia uh and when it becomes stale um you the ammonia becomes really concentrated and you can use it to wash your clothes and in fact you'll probably know this sam but ships would bring huge barrels of horse urine uh, to ports uh, in, like Hull and people would use the urine for, for washing uh, and there'd be a sort of communal barrel that people would have had. And there are other recipes for how to clean things from the period. And I've been doing a little bit of work on on what are known as, as receipt books or recipe books from the period. And here's one of the examples that I came. Soap is actually quite is very good as a, as a cleansing agent but is expensive and heavily taxed and it's also in demand for other items for cooking and candle making and all those kinds of things but nonetheless i have here a recipe for how to make soap using a soap ball uh, and it comes from a manual printed in 1578, called the third and last part of The Secrets of Reverend Master Alexis of Piedmont. Check this out, it's the most wonderful volume. It's got all sorts of things in it about writing in invisible ink and secret codes and all sorts of stuff. Uh, But here we have the recipe for To Make a Soap That Taketh Out All Spots. Take a pound of rock alum, beat it into a powder, the roots of the iris of Florence made into a powder, half a pound of new-laid eggs, two pound and a half of Spanish soap, bray the said powders with the eggs and soap, and make thereof round balls. If one egg be not enough to take, as many as you shall think good, and when you will take out any spot of grease, wash the place of the spot on both sides of the cloth with fair water." Then rub it with the said balls. In other words, the soap balls and cloth upon cloth. This done, wash out the odour with clean water and wring the cloth to make the grease or filth come out better. Then wash it still with clean water and it will be clean. So this isn't like the kind of detergent that we would put in a wash that you'd wash everything with. This is more like spot treatments. So rather like something you'd use a sort of um, a stain devil for today. So there we are, Sam. A... rampage around the history of 16th and 17th century clothing via bling. Very good, very good. Let's do a little quiz to see if you're all paying attention. Number one, what were sumptuary laws? Oh, that's a good one. Number two, how did social standing affect the kinds of clothes you could wear during the Tudor period? Question three, what was Oliver Cromwell's attitude to clothing? Question four. What were the chief characteristics of restoration costume? Five, what were women's fashions like in the second half of the 17th century? Ooh, that's a good one. Quite tricky. Uh, and last but not least, number six, how did people wash their clothes during the 17th century?
0: Ah, very good. And do we have a task for them? Is it to go out and find a
1: 17th century shipwreck? <laughs> no, it's not. a not. But, but but that's a good idea. And full of <laughs> clothes. No, but it's sort of related to that. Now, this is something slightly different. What we would like you to do is to create a scrapbook or PowerPoint presentation of changing fashions and styles of clothing from the beginning of the Tudor period, so uh, the fourteen eighties, through to around seventeen fifty. Now useful resources. You can either collect pictures uh, of clothing in magazines or some of the textbooks that you had or museum guides. Better than that is probably to do a web search, to have a look at history websites. Several good places to go here are go to museums like the Victoria and Albert Museum and also Go to portrait galleries, so go to the National Portrait Gallery and have a look at the Tudor and Stuart portraits. Because what you will have there is depictions of people in different kinds of clothing and you will also be able to date them having done that, what we would like you to do in your scrapbook or PowerPoint presentation is we would like you to put them in chronological order and add your own labels and titles. So you might want to say, this is what a Tudor family looked like. This is what the children looked like. This is what the mother looked like. This is what the father looked like. And also then have a think about the different social levels. How easy is it to get at ordinary people, Is it just the elite who are being pictured here? Is it elite clothes or can you actually get at ordinary people's clothes? Now, if you're looking for ordinary people's clothes, go to the Museum of London website, because what you'll find is you'll have there archaeological finds of ordinary people's clothing. So there we are. I think that's a wonderful sort of really broad project for you to collect images of clothing from the Tudor and Stuart period and put them into a collection of your own devising.
0: Well, that's it for now, guys. I hope you've enjoyed the episode. Do please follow me on social media
1: at Doctor Sam Willis, And you can follow me at James Daybell. You can follow the podcast at UnexpectedPod. We are also on Instagram and Facebook. And we have a website, historiesoftheunexpected.com, where you can find out everything that we have been doing over the past few years, including uh, books on the Tudors, Romans, Vikings, and World War II for you to buy.
0: Whee, That's it for now, guys. Cheerio! Take care, guys. Bye!